Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Those of you who are, are here in the flesh and those who might be joining us by live stream or maybe you're watching on podcast, we welcome you here. We are in the middle of a series, Counting Stars. We're looking at the, the man Abraham, considered the, not only the father of our faith that we're told in the New Testament, he's the father of three different religions on this earth, Judaism, Christianity, as well as Islam. So many people around the world consider his life story to be very important, very informative and in, instructive for us. And as we were working through this series, we've seen that in the New Covenant, that is the, the writings that came after Jesus, the New Testament, those scriptures still comment on the life of Abraham, and they pull out all kinds of lessons about faith and how we're to live as disciples of Jesus. And so it's really remarkable to me as we're studying Abraham, and I'm, I learn more every time I, I open the Bible, but especially when I look at this this man and his life. The more we study this, this Old Testament character of Abraham, the more we learn about how to live the life of Jesus. And we re- it's really remarkable, following Jesus, how to follow Jesus. By the way, I hope you've figured out, if you've gone to generations very long, if you've been journeying with us, that wherever we are in the Bible, whether we're in the Old Testament, the New Testament, whatever we're talking about, we have ultimately one goal, and that is becoming more like Jesus right? That is our goal here. This is not a college course, a survey of the life of Abraham. That is not really our goal. Uh, We're here to learn how to be like Jesus, how to fall more in love with Jesus. Uh, Whether we're studying Abraham or Moses or Paul, our goal is really not to learn more about Abraham, Moses, or Paul, right? We're here to learn more about Jesus. These stories are kind of springboards to help us live more like Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So talking about Abraham it's all a ruse. We're just here to talk about Jesus, okay? It's just a way to trick you into coming here and learning more about Jesus, okay? But keep that to yourself. Okay, here we go. So if you got your Bibles, we've been in, in the book of Genesis. You can open them up to Genesis chapter 18. That's where we are today. We're gonna work through the first uh, 15 verses today, the story shifts pretty significantly after verse 15, and so we're going to go there next week. That's where we really get into the story that leads to Sodom and Gomorrah. So next week, Sodom Sunday. Okay, last week we had Circumcision Sunday. Next week, Sodom Sunday. It's always interesting here at Generations and, and often a little awkward, so, uh, but that's the way we like it. Here we go. So verse 1 of chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham. This happens a lot. Have you noticed this? The, these chapters start the same way very, very often. Now here the Lord appeared. The Lord appeared. I, I want to bring up an interesting little point here because to avoid some confusion, there's, uh, you'll see the Lord. You see it there in the big capital letters. That's a, a technique the translators into English use. Obviously this wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew. So when it was translated into English, English, the translators use that big capital Lord to indicate that the the actual word being spoken here and the person being referred to is Yahweh, God, the God, Yahweh. Um, It gets confusing a little bit because in a chapter like this that we're going to see, a couple of times, the the, the word Lord is used many times, and a couple of times it's used in a different way. Uh, Not all Lords are created equal. Uh, There's a couple of times where the word Lord is, is It says Lord, but it's actually referring to a Hebrew word called Adonai, which means more like 
sir or master. I think of it like the old English, me lord, you know, like, what would you like for breakfast, me lord, you know, that kind of thing. And if I lived back then, my answer would be tacos, Jeeves, always tacos, right? Uh, so, so sometimes you see lord, and it means kind of like, hello, me lord, and then other times it's Yahweh, and we'll point out which is which. Here, it's really clear, the writer is clear that this is God himself appearing to Abraham. And yet, as we go on into verse 2, what we're going to see is we see three men standing nearby. As the story unfolds, he interacts, Abraham interacts with three men who are somehow the Lord, but also three men. It's a bit mysterious. There's several theories about who are these three men. Um, I want to share just a couple of these theories really quickly, and then we can get into the practical applications of this. But theory number A, number A, letter A, the theory is that this is God uh, in manifesting in human form plus two angels, that God and his, his angel posse are coming to talk to Abraham. This is probably the most prominent theory, and there, there's reasons for that. One of the reasons is because later in the story we're going to see that uh, one of these men stay behind to talk to Abraham, and then it says the two angels went on because we find out these three guys are they're on a mission, actually, to go judge uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so there's a, that theory that it's God plus two angels. There's another theory that says this is three angels, but one of these uh, figures is the angel of the Lord, which is a, a kind of a mysterious figure we see in the Old Testament quite a bit. It's an angel who somehow speaks with the voice of God, who speaks with his authority. And we've talked about that in other sermons. There's a third theory, and that is that this is God in three persons. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. So we have the Trinity manifesting in three uh, humans. Um, obviously, this is a theory only among Christian scholars, not Jewish scholars. Um, but what's interesting is the language here, the grammar, as we're going to look at this little passage, it's odd enough that there could be uh, some combination of, of all of the above here. We just don't know for sure. What we know is that in some way, this is a manifestation of God. It's a manifestation of God. We don't have to know perfectly exactly how it all works, and that, that's okay. When God appeared, if you remember last summer, to Moses in a burning bush, we, we don't say God is the bush. Uh, or we, say, we don't say that God is the fire. Uh, and then it's called the angel of the Lord uh, in that passage. So, so we just know that God manifests in ways that are often overpowering. He manifests in ways that are mysterious to us because as he likes to remind me often, he is God and I am not. And so it's okay for him to be a little more mysterious and way beyond what I can wrap my brain around. We just know he does. And so it's, it's good. It's a good reminder for us even today to keep our eyes and our ears open for ways that we might encounter God. Amen? Amen. So here, Abraham speaks to these three men. It says, when he saw him in verse 2, he ran over to them and he bowed low to the ground. And he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. Now here it's the singular Lord, that me Lord, uh, as in master, not Yahweh. Perhaps he hasn't quite recognized who it is. We don't know. Um, he says, don't pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet. Now he's speaking in the plural. He kind of goes back and forth. And rest under this tree. Let me go get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. And this word is, a, is in the plural. So somehow they're all answering. I don't know if they're answering all at once or they're like singing in harmony or what. But it's very well. And do as you say. Verse 6. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. 
Quick, get three sias of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Three sias. Now, this is interesting. This is about 30 pounds or four gallons of flour. This is a lot of bread. They are, he's getting ready to put on a, a serious show here. He doesn't go into Sarah and say, bake a loaf of bread. This is bake a lot of bread. So he's either saying that we're going to have a feast for the whole camp to join us. That's possible. Or he's saying we want to make enough and send them on their way with food for their journey. Um, either way, he is, Abraham is practicing a form of radical hospitality here. Verse 7 Then he ran to the herd. He selected a choice, tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. So there's a lot of hurrying going on here. But notice here, when they say he hurried to bake bread or he hurried to prepare some meat, but but baking bread and killing a calf and slaughtering it, as Pastor was just talking about, and and preparing it, all this is time intensive. So when he tells these guys, let me just make you a little snack before you get on your way, this is going to turn into hours of conversation and relationship and fellowshipping here and hosting. And then while that's happening, it says he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared. He set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Now, today's passage is is kind of split into two sections. We just read this first section here, which is about Abraham interacting with these men. And then it moves into a conversation with Sarah that we're going to look at in a few minutes. But first, I just want to pause over these, these verses because there's something really, really cool packed into this scene that even the New Testament, 2,000 years later, comments on as an example for Christians to exercise the spiritual discipline of hospitality. I want to say a few words about this. This is interesting. According to the New Testament, hospitality is something that's just like, it's not just a nice, polite thing that good and decent Christians ought to do. It's a spiritual discipline. It speaks of it as a discipline, a spiritual practice that we should take just as seriously as prayer, as, as meditation, scripture study, hospitality. And this is just another way that I love how our, our Christian spirituality gets worked out in physical ways manifests outwardly in real-world practice. It's not just good manners, um, but we're taught that the practice of hospitality, it's actually one of the central disciplines of of us walking closer to God. When we talk about hospitality, uh, we want to distinguish it from something else that we're called to, to do, and that is generosity. Hospitality and generosity. We might put it this way. Hospitality is what love looks like when we bless others with what we own. It's what love looks like when we bless others with what we own. You might think of generosity, that kind of refers to to giving away stuff, right? So hospitality is what we do with the stuff that we don't give away, the stuff you still have. Uh, So we we generously give away things, right? You you just gave into the the offering to to honor the Lord. You give. Some of us might liquidate assets so that we can give even more. Uh, We might live more. We might choose, make a conscious choice to live more simply so that we can be an even greater blessing just with with our resources, the things that come in. And Generations Church is very full of of generous people. But hospitality is, is interesting. It says, yeah, but what about the stuff you don't give away? How do we continue to bless people with what we still have? So it's not a matter of kind of letting ourselves off the hook and saying, well, I was generous. Now with what I still have, back off, right? And we sort of you draw this little circle of safety around our, our stuff and our time, keep everybody away. 
But see, what we have is still part of the kingdom of God, isn't it? Because we're part of the kingdom of our, our life. We are stewards. Everything we have is a blessing, and we are stewards of even what we keep. We're still stewards of it. And so we, we in, invest it into the kingdom, whether it's our possessions or our time. We can, use hospi- we can practice hospitality with our time. We can do this in our homes when we invite people in to our home. You know, we're not giving our home away to somebody, but we're inviting people to share that space. Or when we invite people in for meals, when we treat them to a meal or to hang out with us. Uh, when we, you know, offer a ride to somebody in our car or loan our car away. That's examples of hospitality. We can do it with our time, allowing other people into our time and our, our physical space. We create these spaces of, of hospitality. We encounter someone, even when we're among friends, if we encounter someone who might be tempted to feel like an outsider, to welcome them in to these relational circles. This is a spiritual discipline. And Jesus tells us in the New Testament, he tells us, be sure you're not just welcoming in your friends, that you're not just welcoming in those who are people of influence or who can repay you in some way, but welcome in the stranger, welcome in, be, show hospitality to those who can never repay you. And so that's important. And we do this as a church, as members of this local tribe, you know, here called Generations Church. We have guests every Sunday, and that gives us an opportunity. We always have an opportunity to practice this spiritual discipline every Sunday morning. Um, we gather, and it's one of the beauty, the, the beauties of, 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 actually physically gathering together and not just, you know, opting out and say, well, I'll catch it on podcast or something like that, is we get to come together and practice this spiritual discipline, which we couldn't do by ourselves. We can't do it. And so we're going to welcome into others, uh, welcome others into, into our space. It's, it's why I, I tell people who don't feel like it really matters whether they come to church or not, I tell them, your being here is a blessing to all of us. Each one of you, the fact that you are here today, you have blessed us. We say thank you. When a guest comes on Sunday morning, we, they have blessed us by being here, and we want to be a blessing back. And so it is a blessing. And, and when you're absent, that creates a hole that nothing else can fill. It's, real, it's very important, you being here. And, and as you walk up to people, and even after the service, as you walk up to somebody, maybe it's somebody that you've even seen. You've seen them, you know, several times. Maybe you sit there, and they sit there. But you walk up to them and say, I just want to say hi and introduce myself. That, that's a beautiful opportunity uh, to that initiating contact to, to love people. I want, I want to dive a little deeper here and, and, and hit this a little more because we don't talk about this very much. Uh, but these are some important keys with hospitality. And we're taking our time with this. I'll just be honest because sadly there is a, there's a common perception and, and it's a trait that I don't know if it's, I, I'm not saying it's like it's just Generations Church or maybe it's our town or our community or maybe it's Texas or the South or America. I have no idea. I haven't done an anthropological study of this. But there is a perception, and I've heard it from folks who've, friends who've come and visited from the outside. And it, it's kind of sad, and it's that many of us are good at smiling and good at even being polite, you know, because we're from the South. So you're polite in the South. You know, our mama's taught us well. And, and we're often very generous, like to causes or in, the, in an offering or something like that. We're generous. But very, very much too often we are too busy to make real connections. And I've heard this several times. Too often for it to just be one person's opinion. It, we're often in a hurry. That we have, a, we have a perception of being people in a hurry. We have a perception of being people who are guarded when it comes to our personal space. And, um, 
And, it, and it, the, the danger is it can make us very superficial in our interactions with other people. And this isn't to condemn us, but it is an opportunity for us to grow in an area. And we all want to grow and come, become more like Jesus, right? That's our goal. We want to come here, help each other become more like Jesus. So, so that's something. And so to help us, here, here's kind of a big aha moment that might help some of us over a little hurdle when it comes to this. That is this. Hospitality is not about entertaining. It's about inviting others into your space. Okay? So I just want to like set everyone at ease for a second. It is not about entertaining or entertaining more lavishly than you have before. Right? Take a deep breath. Let it out. It's not about entertaining. In other words, some people push off hospitality or even in a moment of opportunity for hospitality because they say, well, I, before I can have anybody over my home, I have to what? I got to clean, right? We got to clean. This place is a wreck. You know, we can't clean. We can't have, we can't invite somebody in. We have to clean. Or we've got to prepare a spread. We got to really make it, you know, we got to have time to do this amazing meal. And that is entertaining. And I, I, I love entertaining. I think that is fun. I like to do that sometimes. Have folks over and like really do it up and, you know, you have fun with that. And many of you are people who you just flow in that gift, that anointing or art or entertaining. You're so amazing. And, you know, I've been to your homes and it is just this amazing, just the spread is passed before you and there's the cheese tray and the bread and the, the thing and the, the main dish and the dessert. And it's just like, wow. It's, and that's how you bless people. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing to do. But when you start to push off hospitality, and feel the pressure and say, I don't think I could do it until I'm able, able to entertain properly, that's when you're actually missing out on the opportunity for hospi- to be hospitable. And actually using the excuse of having to put on the big show as a reason not to do it. I was thinking about this the time. There was a few of us who uh, got to be in India uh, several years ago, and it was one most amazing experience, we were up in this little town that's right near the Bhutan border, right? They were with Gautam Salal, and uh, near Bhutan border, and uh, there was a, a minister or a pastor who was welcoming people into his home. Of course, it's a very, very modest little home, but he was welcoming ministers from all over the area. People were crossing over from Bhutan and Bangladesh and Nepal to get there, and, 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 and we were just very blessed enough to just to get to be there and witness that, and went into the home, and I was very excited to see. I wonder what this is going to be like, you know, when one of them, you know, this, this Indian uh, home, you know, puts on the, the spread for all these ministers. This is going to be an interesting, you know, thing to see in their culture, what it looks like. And we go in, and there's this little living room. Zach, you were there. There was this little living room that was maybe twice the size of this square right here. And uh, there were dozens of people just packed in. And do you know what? There, there, was, there was no buffet filled with, like, food that would have bankrupted this family or anything. We walked in, they grabbed chairs, they'd go outside, find a bucket for you to sit on, they'd grab a crate, whatever it was, a little folding chair, something for you to sit on. And they were so honored to just have people in their home, to welcome people into their home. And it really taught me something that, that it was, they were not, there was not a shred of pride or vanity or embarrassment it was all about the love of, and this hospitality of just welcoming people in their home. And it was much more about welcoming people in their home than what everybody thought of their home. And I thought, well, there's a difference between me and them, right? I would be so consumed. What does everybody think of my house? What do they think about the living room and how everything's decorated, right? And there was none of that. 
And so look, if you like to entertain, that's great. That's great. If, but if that's your favorite form of hospitality, it's wonderful. But no, don't use it as an excuse is all I'm encouraging you. Not to be hospitable when you can't put on an impressive spread or when your house is a little messy. It's going to be okay. Don't let vanity keep you from reflecting Jesus to somebody, right? And, and definitely, definitely don't let your busyness keep you from being hospitable. Don't let, if you are blessed enough to already have lots of friends, don't let that keep you from being hospitable because Jesus says, make sure you're not just having friends over. Make sure you're having the, the stranger and the others. Open your time and space to share with them. So that's kind of what hospitality is and the way it's described in the New Testament, the way it's even referred back to in the Old Testament. Uh, why do we do it? What's our why? I'll say this. Why do we practice hospitality as Christians? Number one, because when we do so, we are reflecting the selfless and reckless love of God. How many of you know this is God's world? This is his creation. We are hospitable because God practices hospitality. He welcomes us into his creation, his world. And so when we extend that love to others, when we are hospitable, we are reflecting God. We are being God-like and, and that's such a beautiful thing. We're learning to become what we were made for. We were made in the image and likeness of God. And so it's a way that we get to actually practice being God-like in that area. Number two, because we might be hosting angels. What? <laughs> it's true. The Bible says this. In, in, over in Hebrews 13, it says, it, and Hebrews 13, by the way, most theologians believe it's a commentary on the passage in Genesis that we're studying today. It's commenting on this. And it says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So the writer of Hebrews is pointing to this encounter with Abraham and saying, this is a great example for us guys, right? You never know the next time you're giving somebody a ride or you extend your, your, your generosity and share your possessions or whatever it is, or open your home, you might be entertaining angels, right? It's, it's kind of head trippy for me. I don't quite understand it all, but I'm just going to put that out there. It's what scripture says and, and leave it for you, right? That's, uh, but what, so, so we might be hosting angels. What we can definitely say is we are definitely hosting Jesus. We are definitely hosting Jesus when we practice hospitality. Jesus told his followers over in Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And they said, when do we do all that? And he said, when you do it for the least of these, you did it for me. So we're definitely, definitely hosting Jesus. So when we're loving people through this simple, beautiful form of hospitality. We're expressing, it, it, it's a form of worship. We're actually a form of worship that it takes towards Jesus. So you can see just, wow, how fundamental this is to our faith. Amen? Amen. All right. We'll move on to verse 9. The last few verses here are important. They lead us into kind of a different direction. So we're going to look at that for our last few minutes. Verse 9. They say, where is your wife, Sarah? Now, remember, she's just had her name changed. Remember that in the last chapter? Uh, so these strangers somehow seem to know that. Abraham says, they're in the tent. And then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah, the writers reminding us, were already very old. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. 
And this phrase here means basically she was, she, we would consider post-menopausal. Within that culture, it's important to remember that a woman's identity, uh, her, her value was seen pretty much in childbearing. That was her, her identity. And so here's a woman who's long past been able to have a child. And we learn in a bit that she's feeling discarded, worn out. We hear in other passages that just the, the sight of other women having children is incredibly painful to her. And so for, for Sarah, having a child would truly be a miracle, right? I mean, for Abraham to have a kid, it'd be like, way to go, dude. But for Sarah, this is kind of impossible. Verse 12 says this, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, as she's thinking all this, after I am worn out, and that word there in the Hebrew, it's the word for like an old garment that's tattered and frayed. After I'm worn out and tattered like an old garment. And my Lord, that's that word Adonai, my Lord, is old. Will I now have this pleasure? Um, wondering if I should mention this. There's different words in the Hebrew for pleasure. This is the word for sexual pleasure. You're welcome. <laughs> I didn't make it up. So she, she's laughing because she's not just thinking, am I going to be blessed with a child? She's also thinking, wait, I'm going to have sex <laughs> with that old coot, right? <laughs> That's something to laugh about. Sarah's a real person. Isn't that amazing? Um, Verse 13 says, Then the Lord, this is Yahweh, Lord, said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you. He repeats this. I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And then look at this. Sarah was afraid, so she lied. Sarah was afraid, so she lied. She was afraid, so she lied. Uh, let that sink in for a second. And she said, I did not laugh. And here we're expecting some really profound truth to be uttered by Yahweh in response to this lie, but all he says is, yeah, you did. <laughs> and that's it. The three men, or the, the men leave to get up, and we're going to look at next week. Um, and at first, this is a really seems like a really odd way to end this conversation, but it's really the perfect response because her fear leads her to lie. And God's response is, I know you. You don't need to lie to me. He knows her. And this is fascinating. I'll tell you what's fascinating is I've read a lot of commentaries on this exchange right here. And a lot of theologians talking about God's rebuke of Sarah and I can't find the rebuke. I don't see a rebuke. She says, I never laughed. And he doesn't say, shame on you, lying woman. You will now not be blessed with a child. No. He just says, yes, she did. And when I put myself in her place in that moment, that fear that she's feeling, it's actually the most loving thing God could say to her in that moment. He's letting her know, I know you. I know your innermost thoughts. I know your fears. I know your hurts when you see someone else with a child. 
and you don't have to lie to me to keep me from loving you. Isn't this beautiful of God? Your fears are unfounded. The Apostle Paul, 2,000 years after this event, he said this in 1 John, the Apostle John, he said this in 1 John 4. He said, there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So we're, we're taught in scriptures, and boy, it's true, isn't it? Fear leads to lying. It leads to lying. Fear will lead to lying because when we're afraid, it has to do with punishment and consequences, right? And so we think if this person finds out such and such is true, there's going to be consequences. It's going to affect our relationship. So there's fear. And all of us know there's those times where, where you, you, you've done something and we wish we hadn't. And we also know we're about to get exposed and maybe there's, a, maybe, maybe there's a chance we won't get found out. And so lying in those moments just seems like an escape hatch. It seems like oxygen. We could just create this alternate reality and nobody will get hurt. And so lying becomes very tempting when fear is our motivator. It's very tempting when fear is our motivator. But love, perfect love says, not only do I love you, but I know you. And I know your imperfections. And I know the worst thing about you, and I'm still here. And you notice, God was even loving enough to not complete her full thought and say it out loud. And when we realize God's love, that he is not out to shame us and out us, he is out to love us, that frees us up to be truth tellers. And to, and to push back that temptation to lie. Uh, there's a movie that I love. In fact, let's play movie trivia, all right? Who can tell me, look at the screen, who can tell me what movie this is from? I heard, I heard some kindred spirits of film back there. A Quiet Place. It's a movie called A Quiet Place. came out last year. And it's such an amazing movie. A Quiet Place. I'm telling you, it is the family feel-good movie of 2018. Uh, and it's, it's out on video or streaming or something you can watch it now. Uh, I should probably mention it's a scary horror thriller. Uh, but aside from that, it is a family film, okay? And by that, I don't mean you should sit with your whole family and watch it. It is a film about family. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, it's really good. And in this scary monster movie... Uh, one of the primary relationships that's going on in the film is, is that's getting worked out is this relationship between the father and the teenage daughter who is deaf. And because of her being deaf, the whole family speaks sign language. And so throughout the movie, they're speaking sign language. And the father's relationship with her is very strained for a number of reasons. It, there's monsters in the world, so he's focusing on trying to keep the whole family safe and alive. At the same time, he's trying to raise this son to like grow up and be a man. And so for multiple reasons, his relationship with his daughter is strained and she just feels unloved. She feels rejected by him. In one of the climactic scenes in the movie, I'm not going to give it away, um, this, there's a scene, lots of you know, crazy stuff is happening and they see each other from across a space and he signs to her. He's, he's using sign language and he signs two things. And the first thing he signs is, which is, I love you. 
I love you. He's just letting her know. Because, you know, it's one of those points in the movie. You don't know if anybody's getting out alive. And so he signs, I love you. But now what's interesting is just saying I love you after all of this kind of trauma that they have been through and the stress that they have been through as a family, it's kind of a cliche. That doesn't really do it. And it turns out the actress who plays the teenage girl, she, is, she really is deaf. And so she was explaining even to the writers, you know, this girl in this moment, she needs something more than just an I love you right here. And, and she's going to really need, to, she's going to need something else. And so they took her advice. And so the, the, the father, he, he not only says, I love you. And then he follows it with, I have always loved you. And I get a little misty right now just thinking about it. Yeah. Everyone else in the theater is just screaming behind their fingers. And I'm like, <laughs> that's right. Um, I love you. I have always loved you. And it invites her in that moment. You see the awareness on her face. It invites her to say, not only in this moment, this really scary moment, I love you, like he's just trying to make me feel better. But now to, she, she can think back to all the moments all the moments when I didn't sense his love, every day of my life when I didn't sense it, and I didn't see it, and I didn't realize that his love has always been there. And, and I hear God saying to Sarah, yes, you did laugh. I, I know I have always known you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to lie so that you can be accepted by me. God says to us, not only I love you, but I have always loved you. And let that sink in for a minute. Over in Ephesians, the writer says, even before he made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Even before he made you, even before he made you in this world, he was already loving you. God has always been loving you. Even knowing what you would be, even knowing the bad stuff you were going to do, he loved you. He loved you before, during, and after. And verse 5 says, God decided in advance, in advance, to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Christ. We got a taste of what that feels like to, to love even before you've met him. We got that taste in our family. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Listen, God is not just tolerating you. Some of us feel like that, if we had to be honest. Like, yeah, God's good. He hasn't zapped me today with lightning, right? He is not just putting up with you. He's not loving you even though he can barely stand you. God loves you and he likes you. And some of us need to hear that today. He loves you and he likes you. You bring him delight. So I want to finish this message by doing a little thought experiment. The worship team can make their way up here. Um, they're going to lead us in a time of worship and surrender here for a few minutes, but I want to take a minute right now to just Let's, let's allow two different ideas. I want to allow two thoughts to take hold in your mind right now. First, the first thought is this. Think of the worst thing 
you've ever done. The thing that you're most ashamed of. Or if you're like me, it's a list, right? Why stop at one? And there's a rule, by the way, you're not allowed to ask the person you came with what they were thinking <laughs> during this, right? It's completely personal and private it's between you and God. The worst thing you've ever done, as we hold that in our mind, the second thought I want you to hold in your mind is this, that God was loving you even then. As you did it, before you did it, after you did it, he was loving you even then. Not that he was able to start loving you after you repented. He loved you even before because he has always loved you. There's never been a moment where you've needed to lie to him out of fear that the truth would drive him away. He says in the, in the New Testament that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from his love and that worst thing that you can think of, he is saying to you, I know, I know, and I'm still here. And so we can rest in that beautiful, unconditional love. We can be completely truthful with him. So I want us to take a moment, let these two truths sink in. I have failed, yes, and God has loved me through it all. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.